Whether it's a river runs through it, or the story of Mary McLean, Fool's Crow, or A Man Called Horse, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott, and we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. In this episode, we're going to talk about two books written by a father and a daughter. The first, The Widow Nash, is a novel by Jamie Harrison, and it's a late 19th century story of a young woman who takes advantage of an unexpected opportunity to fake her own death and adopt a whole new persona. The second novel is a book published in 1981 by Jamie's father, Jim Harrison, known for Legends of the Fall, among other classics. A Good Day to Die is the story of three young people who decide to go on a road trip up to Montana from Georgia to blow up a dam. <laughs> so I've been looking forward to this discussion with you, Aaron, because we had very different opinions about both of these books, and a lot of it had to do with taste and writing style. But one thing we could both agree on, I think, was that both of these writers are capable of incredible prose. Right, and... One issue that's always intriguing to me in cases like this is how much of it is genetic or learned. Yeah. The nature-nurture problem. But for sure, you can tell that the daughter is every bit the prose master as the father. Yeah, Jamie's got the talent for sure. Well, one of the things that was interesting when I talked to Jamie about this book, she said that she wanted to start the book with the moment where Dulcie steps off the train and fakes her own death, but she didn't have the confidence. She didn't think she was a good enough writer. And of course, after having read this book, I would totally disagree with the not good enough writer part. And I think you agree. I kind of wish she would have started the book that way. Oh, definitely. I I felt like the book for me was really two different books. Mm -hmm. The book opens with a narrative that really doesn't have anything to do with the title. For starters, and we don't get to the Widow Nash part until easily a third, maybe a f halfway through the book. Right. And then for me, the you know that was the really interesting part. And I thought the narrative at that point uh, just took on a whole different character flavor. And that was the part I really engaged with. So one of the, the things that these books had in common was the two of the main characters, uh, the male characters, are pretty awful people. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it charitably. Yeah, no kidding. So in her book, Dulcie is the main character, and she's um, a fairly wealthy young woman or comes from a wealthy family. Her father is a mining executive, and she's engaged to his partner, whose name is Victor, and Victor is basically a sociopath. No question. It's interesting because most of the people around her are confused about why she doesn't want to marry this guy. But, you know, the readers know that he has brutally raped her twice. And um, so she's got very good reason to want to distance herself from him. But at the same time, it's interesting that she doesn't distance herself from him more immediately and with more conviction. Right. That was one of the things that did throw me about the book was why did she put up with this when she, I mean, 
clearly it was a different time and place, but it seems like she could have just told her father, for example, what was going on, and yeah. that might have been the end of it. Well, and, and of course, the problem with that is that Walton, her father, is not much better. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in some ways worse. Yeah. He kills his wife and a couple of his children, yep. you know, indirectly with syphilis yeah. that he knows he has. Yep. He's got some issues. So, but I guess, you know... Maybe that's by way of setting up the second half of the book where she does disappear and take on a whole new identity. Yeah. You know, maybe the author felt like that part of her life had to be overwhelmingly negative so that the reader would be with her when she switched identities. Yeah, it did seem that way. And, you know, there's I I love the old classic uh, phrase about the golden handcuffs. I mean, she's got a pretty good life. So she's got a lot of reasons to sort of stick around. But I did feel like that uh, a lot of what Jamie was trying to do was just establish how bad things were so that we understood why she would make such an abrupt change in her life. And I, I guess one other element that maybe we should mention is that the the father, that first half of the book being a different narrative, I think it focused a lot more on him and his idiosyncrasies, including being obsessed with earthquakes, among other things. Right, yeah, those journals that he kept. Right, and and the journals themselves become a real motif in the book, and she's sort of the caretaker of them. It's a little bit of a mystery what exactly is in this notebook, and, you know, we probably shouldn't give it away, but I wonder if, there, you know, the two different plots there... Part of the reason there was so much emphasis on these male characters in the beginning was, you know, that was a, a big plot element. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm here with Jamie Harrison to talk about her book, The Widow Nash. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So first I wanted to ask you uh, just basically how you came up with the idea for this book, a woman coming up with a completely new identity. Where did that idea come from? Part of what got me going on the character was um, almost an image of a woman simply walking off a train and disappearing. Um, And I don't know, I I played around with it off and on, thought of doing a short story, thought of other ways of handling it. I was writing scripts at the time. Um, But in the end, I mixed it together with um, a family story. Um, My great great-grandfather was a mining engineer who traveled all through the West. Um, He'd had two daughters, and one of them went on to have a very unhappy marriage. So gradually, somewhere in the back of my head, this woman getting off the um, train was sort of like the great-grandmother who should have disappeared from her life. Mm. Okay. Well, um, one thing Aaron and I wondered about was... um, we love the part where she walks off the train and um, creates this whole new identity for herself. We were wondering why you didn't start with that. Because I tried to. <laughs> I tried to, and I couldn't pull it off. Really? Yeah, I did. Um, I sort of wrestled with that, and in the end, I needed to just go back and do it in a linear. Mm. So what did, what was it that you were trying to accomplish with the first part of the book where she's stuck in her own life with these two well explaining kind of, why or, why she wants to get off a train yeah, and disappear that's kind of what yeah we yeah there were too many um elements i think if i hadn't i included a lot of things um in this book the different elements art ledgers 
this and that, a lot of her father's past, and I was simply trying to pull too many things in mm. to get away with it. Right. But I did still want, when I wrote the train scene, to have people not be sure if she was going to get off or not, or mm. what she was going to try to do. Right. So I was curious about the Walton character, her father. Um, he's got syphilis. He's sort of um, indifferent to the fact that he's still sort of spreading it around. What was the... Oh, he uses birth control. <laughs> <laughs> um, go ahead with that question again. Sorry. Well, I was just curious about um, the motivation for that character. I mean, he's, um, he's very self... Um, uh, destructive, and also sort of he has he's a tender side too. I mean he's he's pretty complicated. Well, I don't think I think people um, are rarely purely. I was going to say assholes. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that they have good and bad quanti- qualities. Mm. You know, Walton. Nobody knew how to cure syphilis at that point. Um, people typically didn't know when they'd gotten it for some time. Uh, he tries to use some protections. He loves women. Right. Um, and, you know, we all know people who can't stop mm-hmm. right. their bad habits, despite yeah. the destruction to themselves or others. Right. And then there's the interesting contrast between him and, and Victor, who's basically um, completely um, averse to intimacy. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um Sort of two sides of the same coin. I don't, yeah. Victor, I've known people like Victor. I think we all have, um, just like knowing people like Walton, and he's just deeply uncomfortable in his own skin. Mm-hmm. Walton is a little too comfortable in his own skin. Mm, yeah, that's true. So, my favorite scene was the moment when, okay, so Dulce um, steps off the train, she creates this whole new persona, the Widow Nash. She uh, makes a whole new life for herself here in Livingston, and she falls in love with this man, Lewis. And uh, my favorite scene was uh, the scene where Lewis actually reveals to her accidentally that he knows her story, that he knows who she is. Um, I was curious about your timing for that, whether you were um, tempted to have him um, discover her identity earlier or what how did you uh, come to that well he does discover it earlier and we never really know how at what point he is sure That's, yeah. who she is um i just want to have a good balance she doesn't know if he's recognized her they they see each other on the train and then they run into each other again in livingston right. and she hopes that he even though he says that she seems familiar that he doesn't put her together with mm-hmm. this girl who's disappeared and become somebody else. Um, it was really hard trying to decide how best to let that one out and how long to pl- let mm-hmm. it play. Right. Yeah, I wrote different versions. Oh, I imagine, yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that they both were um, really afraid of how that uh, revelation was going to affect their relationship for the same reason, both both because they were afraid of losing the other one. So. Because it mattered, yeah. yeah. And they'd both been lying to each other. Right. Yes. Yeah, so. that was great. So I wanted to, um, since this episode focuses also on your, your father, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with him as far as, um, especially with, um, I know you worked a lot with him on 
screenplays and various other projects and just wondered what your if you wanted to talk a little bit about your relationship with him um well it was mostly great you know he wasn't an easy guy um I miss him um he might not have been uh you know the classic father but he he was a great father um he and my mother were very young uh, when I was born and I grew up with not a lot of money, but always being able to have the books I wanted. Mm. That was the thing. Yeah. They bought books and wine. Uh, <laughs> and um, Good food. And good food, yeah. Um, and he, you know, threw books my way, quoted poetry to me, um, pushed me and encouraged me. I had never wanted to be a writer, but I was always a reader. I read a lot of his books and sometimes made comments and he read all mine and, and was really helpful. He That's actually uh, helped with one scene in this book, mm. um, suggest, made a suggestion that I took. Uh, writing screenplays with him didn't go really well. Or it I did was not. curious <laughs> about that. How? Yeah. We just would have completely different takes on mm. it. Um, and typically what we'd do is he'd write a treatment and, um, and then I'd make changes to it. And we'd, we'd go in tandem that way. And it worked out okay. But nothing was ever made and nothing really, you know, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And it was fun in some ways, but it usually just became another excuse to drive around <laughs> and then have drinks and dinner. Mm-hmm. So I know he, he always identified himself more as a poet. And I, I loved his poetry. How did he feel about um, writing other genres? You know, he would he always claim that he hated writing the screenplays. He always enjoyed the first draft. He rarely enjoyed subsequent drafts. So that was not um, really his bag. He loved writing the novels, but yeah, he he was primarily a poet, and I do wish he'd gotten more recognition as one. I yeah. love his poetry. His poetry was amazing. Um, we heard a story... Um, and I'm hoping you can confirm or deny <laughs> about whether his um, initial novel was somebody said that when he hurt his back, um, McGuane said, well, now that you're laid up, you're going to have to write a novel. <laughs> yeah, it's more or less true. He yeah. um, fell, I think the first big back injury fell into a gulch. He ripped the muscles in his back. And then he ended up actually in the hospital after he had a reaction to penicillin. Um, and so he was down for about a month. Mm. Um, got very skinny, which made him very happy, um, and uh, and wrote the mm. novel. Yeah. And what was his first one? Wolf. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn from him as a writer? You think? Well, I joke about it not being a good way to make a living. <laughs> um, uh, what did I learn? Just to throw yourself in it, not to have, not to be careful. Mm, yeah, and to love language, mm. you know, just to love to learn to write by reading, mm. and by listening to the sound of words. Mm. When I first read this book, I was just so enthralled by the the prose. I mean, it really pulled me in. Oh, so, yeah, that was the the first I, thing I noticed was like, oh God, yeah, she got the gene. <laughs> well, some days, yeah, some days you just don't have it. We were just joking about how um, I'm writing. A new book now, and I feel like all I'm doing is getting a character in and out of a room. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, well, there's days like the that. muse is not singing right yeah, now. So, yeah, we all have those days, but yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks, Russell. Yeah.
shift over to Jim's book and the male characters in that one. Not to condone it or anything, but I think the main character, the narrator, who's never named, I don't think he's named, is he? You know, he. I guess he's a little more tolerable in just that he's a very libidinous guy, but he's not, uh, you know, I don't think he ever assaults her or anything like, you know, Victor. He's kind of clueless. He's just, he's a victim of his, of his, uh, you know, his base desires. He, you know, he wants, he wants to have sex all the time and party <laughs> and fish. Yeah. I, I thought about the narrator as a really solid example of, you know, I've often wondered about, uh, when the whole free love and things started in the seventies, how many of these kids that came from very, you know, sort of provincial homes, tried to contend with this whole idea of, you know, making love to anyone they wanted to and the the conscience that they struggled with. Right. So it's your classic uh, love triangle, except that Tim, the Vietnam veteran, doesn't really seem to care much about this this woman that apparently he's been in a relationship for a while before he went to Vietnam. And I think one other detail that's really relevant to the plot and sort of gets to you know, just the character of these people on this crazy trip is that they meet in a bar. So Tim and the narrator are, you know, they've been friends for all of about 24 hours when they decide to go yeah. do this. Yeah. So the basic storyline is these three people, uh, the narrator and this guy named Tim, who's a friend of his, who's a Vietnam vet, and he's pretty screwed up. They decide to go blow up this dam and uh, Tim says, oh, I know someone that would love to go with us. So he brings this friend of his, Sylvia, along. And Sylvia is completely in love with Tim. And, of course, the narrator is completely in love with Sylvia. <laughs> so It's true. And the the narrator of the book, I think the key element of his character is he's just at loose ends. He has no focus. No. You know, he's been in Florida tarpon fishing and partying and wakes up hungover and, you know, sort of meets Tim at a bar. And then every, you know, the uh, picking up Sylvia, like you said, comes a little bit later. But he has no focus mm. or it's it's almost like he goes along with this crazy plan because he has nothing better to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then once he, like you said, when he once he sees Sylvia, then suddenly, you know, she becomes the purpose in his life. It's like. So they end up. Uh, on their travels, Tim is sort of uh, obviously someone who's trying to escape from his past. So he spends most of his time partying, going to prostitutes, and like just basically throwing all this stuff in Sylvia's face. And the the narrator is the one who's caught in the middle of all this, like completely lusting over Sylvia and trying to, you know, make her feel okay about what's happening all the time. And also, you know, wishing that she would come around, which she keeps sort of threatening <laughs> to do. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, to reiterate a point that maybe you made about the difference between Tim and either Walton or Victor is that, you know, he is a Vietnam veteran, freshly back, and he's disfigured. His face is a mess. And while I don't think that excuses his behavior, it certainly explains it. Yeah, right. He's sort of the typical lost young man. Whereas Walton is just sort of unapologetically, he's a womanizer without any scruples, basically. But, you know, he, 
but he also has the he also has his charm and i think that's part of what she was able to accomplish that i liked was that you know like most seducers he has this charming side i wanted to read this one short part where he's talking to dulcie and he gives her this little bit of advice and i thought it was one of the nicer tender moments between them he says to her the world is about touch dulce you don't believe it now or you only think about it in terms of food or plants, which is the only way your poor, sour grandmother understood the concept. But you know by the end, it's all about touch, even if it's the temperature of water or wind on your skin. And everything will truly change when you understand another human hand or mouth. I mean, that sort of captures his whole philosophy of life, I think, in a way. It's just all about self-indulgence, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty illustrative passage. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say uh, we had great admiration for different parts of these two books, but we either we both uh, had different opinions about which one was better. <laughs> you know, a, a big part of it was I read uh, A Good Day to Die when I was, you know, in my late teens, early 20s. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. So you read it at a time when you were probably going through a lot of the same stuff that the narrator was. Oh, for sure. And, you know, spent years in Missoula at Loose Ends. And I'm looking here. I'm tr- I, I would like to read one passage that really resonated with me. I, th- I think you know okay. which one I'm talking about. The main problem in Missoula proved to be the air, which was acrid and yellow from the huge conical lumber kilns and stung the nose and eyes. It seemed ironical that the town was favored naturally by the confluence of three lovely rivers, was surrounded by mountains, was the learning center of Montana with its university, and still the whole place smelled like a stinking pile of shit, which required an absolute (laughs) mutation of the senses to live with. (laughs) That is fabulous. It is, and I don't think there's many novels that mention Missoula or books about Missoula. It's It's not... Uh, river runs through it. Let's just say that. No, it's not. <laughs> and of course, that's one of the things that I do like about Jim it, Jim Harrison's writing is that he was he was brutally honest. I mean, he didn't uh, he didn't dance around anything. So I agree. And since you mentioned it earlier, I think uh, a lot of his novels, as opposed to the poetry, have been criticized for being kind of macho fiction like Hemingway mm-hmm. or something and that these male characters most of them are so unredeemable but I do think it's interesting that on the first edition of A Good Day to Die Margaret Atwood uh, gave him a pretty nice encomium that is fascinating isn't yeah. it talk about an unexpected fan that's that's cool she says this novel speaks with absolute accuracy to and about its generation mm. The thing that comes through most strongly is the directionlessness, the bankruptcy of even the most recent American dreams, and the apathy. Wow. Boy, she really nailed it. Yeah, that she did. Yeah. That's great. I love it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on Breakfast in Montana again. Um, for the next episode, we're going to talk about two novels by women. Uh, the first one is Kate Kaleva's Shaking Out the Dead and... Dorothy Johnson's... The Hanging Tree, which came out in the 50s. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. See you next time.